2: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Whose Woods Are These edition. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. On today's show, Hulu brings us an adaptation of the true crime bestseller Under the Banner of Heaven. It stars Andrew Garfield as a Mormon detective whose faith in his own faith is being tested by the grisly murder of a young woman. She, in turn, had tested the boundaries of propriety as defined by the LDS church, uh show also stars Daisy Edgar Jones. And then, Petite Maman is a small and exquisitely French film about two eight year old girls becoming fast friends. It's a slice of life gem with a huge twist. And finally, The Legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted, best known for designing Central Park, is the subject of a New Yorker article by Alexandra Lang. Um, she explores whether his legacy can still be a living one in our blessedly more woke world. I'm joined, though, there's just such a melancholy to that verb this week. I'm joined by Julia Turner, who's in studio, even though I'm not. Julia, I'm so sorry.
1: I'm sorry I didn't get, get 3D Steve, but I'm sitting here with 3D Dana, which is a delight. Oh, fuck. You're a third of the way there. Imagine podcasting looking at... Dana's lovely mug, having thoughts, ah. expressing ideas. Wowza.
0: <laughs> all right. I'm going to take the, the empty part of that mug and say I was so looking forward to recording all three of us in the studio, which is vanishingly <laughs> rare, even in non-COVID times. And we were going to have lunch afterward. And I personally am I'm sad, um, but happy okay. to have you on the line.
2: Yeah. Can I just say that there's one pair of ribs left on my body between which you haven't inserted the <laughs> FOMO knife? <laughs> now talk about the 3d cookies that dana brought into the studio they're
0: crunchy and go in for the kill
2: finish the job yeah crunchy and butterscotchy
0: kind of like your presence (laughs) on the air (laughs) i'm
2: just
1: gonna prop one up in steve's chair and kind of wiggle it a little bit while you talk with
0: googly eyes (laughs) yeah
2: how easy it is to replace me with a cookie i mean i'm Kind of honored? I don't know. Anyway, I will say also, though, for those who don't know, you are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Dana. Hey, hey. We have a lot of extracurriculars this week. Let's knock one uh, out of the way and out of the park right away, which is you have an event coming up that I am determined to go to unless I get COVID again. Uh, Let's talk about it.
0: That's right. I've been announcing my book events the last couple of weeks so that people have something of a heads up uh, because there aren't that many places that I can yell about them. It's basically here on Twitter. This week, what I have coming up is a book event not for myself, but for a longtime beloved friend of the podcast, Jody Rosen, whose new book, Two Wheels Good, is coming out next week. It's a book about the history of the bicycle and I'm very honored about this. Jody chose me to interview him at his launch event. So that is going to be next Monday night at 7. I believe it's also being live streamed and uh, and I'll be interviewing him at the Books Are Magic bookstore at 7 p.m.
2: Okay. And can you tell me the date, precise date in May in case someone listens to this podcast, you know?
0: It is Monday, May 23rd at 7 p.m. EST.
2: All right. Shall we make a show? You guys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Well, Under the Banner of Heaven is a 1980s period piece. It's one of those, as I understand it, collaborations between FX and Hulu. You can see it streaming on Hulu. It's based on the true crime bestseller by John Krakauer. It stars Andrew Garfield as Detective Jeb Pyrie, a Mormon cop who must investigate the murder of a young mother and her infant child, Brenda, is played by Daisy Edgar Jones. And she's married into a very prominent Mormon family. They're a huge, sprawling, but tight-knit Clan, uh, who's under the thumb of an almost Old Testament like patriarch and dominated utterly by the men in the family. He's had all boys the patriarch, so it's a bunch of brothers, their wives, and their many, many, many kids. The show also flashes back to the founding of the Mormon church, upon which it casts, I would say, an extremely skeptical eye. There's a continuity between then and now, and it's not found in faith, but more in patriarchy and violence. Uh, These are the assertions of the show, I would argue. Anyway, Jeb's cop partner is Bill Taba, an ex-Vegas cop. And to put it mildly, a non-Mormon, he's a member of the, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Paiute tribe. uh, And they're the original claimants to Utah's land. He has a wry outsider's view on the Mormon folkways, which seem to be compromising the investigation at every turn, even as the investigation begins to undermine Jeb's own faith. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. Uh, in the clip, we're going to hear the Andrew Garfield character, Detective Pyre. He's questioning Alan Lafferty, whose wife and baby have been killed. Uh, Pyre, as I said, is a practicing Mormon. Alan, meanwhile, the suspect has parted ways with the LDS church. All right, let's, uh, let's listen. Are you certain that the men who did this were all strangers? Is it possible that any could have been family? Certain? No. I can't ever be certain about anything again. But I have learned to live with doubt. Do you ever feel doubt? I told you you are not here to talk about me. Now, things change when you have kids. You know, the things you used to ignore, they get under your skin. Especially if you have girls. You want the best for them. And I could not see how the best for my little girl was being caught up in a church that would force her to make covenants to obey all men for the rest of her life. Do you have daughters? Stop it, stop it. Alan, stop. I ask the questions. If you keep wasting precious time, you're going to find yourself in an accessory charge. Julia, I'll start with you. What uh, would you make of this?
1: My main takeaway from this is that I should go back and read John Crackower's Under the Banner of Heaven, because <laughs> I never read it. I liked some of his other nonfiction. Um, and it seems clear from this uh, show that the portion of that book that is about, the, about Mormon history itself and the beliefs that are embedded within it and the various ways in which it evolved into different sets of beliefs and splinters um, – are so important to the book and so interestingly done that they are included as part of this miniseries. But boy, howdy, do they not work? <laughs> like, and, and you know, meanwhile, you're in sort of what feels like prestige, true crime territory with like an interesting actor and in Andrew Garfield playing a complicated cop who is solving a grisly murder and the way in which that murder is told and the story of the family and the the unspooling of the suspense and the various characters and the suspicious brothers, like I'm enjoying is maybe a tough word, but I think that's well done. Interestingly told, you know, uh, Dustin Lance Black, who is the um, showrunner here, himself was raised Mormon. And I think it engages interestingly with the material and, and sensitively, although, of course, there have been some responses from Mormons who, who decry the show. But it, just like these characters in the middle of the interrogation rooms will be like, it's like when so-and-so from <laughs> such-and-such did such-and-such on the prairies. And then like a woman in a bonnet is in like ye oldie Laurie <laughs> wilder garb and like massacres are happening and horses are galloping into the wilds. And it's just like none of those people in the that chunk of the show feel fully rounded in any fashion. They feel like they're doing like a tableau vivant of Mormon history
0: for some reason Which in the is middle. a very Mormon thing to do, <laughs> okay. right? I mean, tableau vivants. I just remember in, in Angels in America, there's a lot of sort of, you know, lampooning of this sort of style of presentational art in Mormon settings that has to do with reenacting historical moments. And the fact that this show, which is written by a Mormon or former Mormon, Dustin Lance Black, and I want to get into that, you know, that he is in fact a lapsed Mormon himself, um, that he was not more able to integrate those scenes dramatically with the rest of the show seems odd. And I wonder as well how Krakauer did it. I mean, I doubt that the book would have been The hit that it was and that most of Krakauer's books are if he had not integrated that story more successfully.
1: Well, I mean, what the review says, there's no detective plot. So in the the Krakauer book, you're learning about the murder and you're learning about the past and you're sort of, I think, probably the suspense comes from untangling how much is this murderous splinter sect of Mormonism You know, the opposite of what historical Mormonism was or the natural evolution of some of its darkest beliefs, I gather. I mean, this is me just like guessing based on watching the show. But that feels like it could have its own narrative tension within the confines of a nonfiction book. But basically, they like added the detective to make it work for TV. But, you know,
2: maybe they just needed
1: to have illusions. I don't know. It's just it's just so... You know, it's like one of those f- kids flip books where it's like a hippo head and a hippo body and then just like a horse butt. Yes. And you're like, uh, what,
2: exactly what is the right. horse butt doing here? Yeah, my God. I mean, and I'll just say quickly, Dana, before throwing you, uh, to me, it was all horse butt. I just thought this is not peak TV. This is Nader TV. And no. it made me think. I thought it was. I'm sorry. I mean, let me also say quickly, boy, howdy, Julia is my favorite, Julia. That was great. That was very fun. But I, I just had no patience for this, Dana. I, I can't, I can't. With hockey, I, I just, like, I have to blurt it out. I just thought this was transcendently awful. I thought none of the actors looked prepared or like they knew what they were doing or that they enjoyed saying their lines. It, it, it. Even I think the clip we played conveys it. I mean, Garfield to me seems lost here. He's like, who the hell is this character, and what is he doing? I thought it was just. I, on on really honestly, I gave it close to three hours. I thought it was unwatchably bad
0: Wow I think I, I disagree with that pretty strongly like, in, in fact, I found it kind of lullingly watchable with the exception of the you know the Joseph Smith Mormon parts, which are just like time to make a cup of tea because the lady in the <laughs> bonnet is back. <laughs> <laughs> but but Andrew Garfield, then again, I'm just I, I'm going through a huge period of just crushing so hard on Andrew Garfield as an actor specifically. I mean, he's a very mm-hmm. likable presence. He's He's a movie star type, you know, so he has that star quality that sort of draws your eye, even if it's not the greatest dialogue. But Yeah, Andrew Garfield is brilliant. When I saw him as as prior in Angels in America, I sort of revised my opinion of him. Like, he's not just a likable guy who's a cute Spider-Man and who's fun and romantic leads. He can do anything. And then I saw him in Tick, Tick, Boom, not a great movie, but wait, he can sing, he can dance, he can be funny. I'm so into Andrew Garfield, and I think he kind of seals the deal on that somewhat artificial detective narrative that's slapped onto the show. I also think Gil Birmingham as his partner is really good, and I disagree that they seem disinterested. I think for once, more so than in True Detective... Their connection doesn't seem like something contrived, like the two cops who are so different in their styles and yet they mesh. You actually sort of believe that they're becoming friends. And Gil Birmingham's character, Detective Taba, the Native American guy who's not a Mormon, was never a Mormon and is somewhat on the outside of of this culture. And every other character in the show, practically, is to some degree involved with the Mormon church you know, provides this kind of proxy for the viewer. Like the only person who curses. It's kind of cool to see a detective show where everybody is not spewing obscenities at every moment. And when someone does, upstanding Andrew Garfield, Mormon cop, notices it and objects to it.
2: Okay, then I'm going to take a quick walk in these woods see if I can find those furry sons of guns who ripped this place to shit. Uh, Bits. Thank you.
0: I think there's a kind of a freshness in seeing that world. The other thing I had to say about the Mormonism of the show is just that... I can completely see why Mormons would be offended by oh my it God. Yeah. because whether or not this was Dustin Lance Black's intention or not – I mean, it really makes the entire religion look pretty culty. I mean, it's it's sort of co- contrasting this very fundamentalist family who's doing some practices that are, in fact, outside the directives and laws of the church with people like the Daisy Edgar-Jones character, the young woman who ends up being murdered or who is murdered from scene one and we see only in flashback. Um, she comes from a more forgiving and somewhat progressive Mormon family who believes, for example, that she should go to college and have a job. Um, so there's that conflict that's played out But really, all sides of the church come off looking pretty bad in this show. And, uh, you know, as a person who's pretty unconnected with the Mormon church, that doesn't personally offend me. But it doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, there may be Mormon organizations rising up against their representation on the show. That said, Justin Lentz Black grew up in the church, left the church for what sounds like a very personal reason. I mean, he hasn't talked about it in detail, but I think his mother was physically abused by his father and the church in his eyes at least, didn't condemn that or do enough about it. And he, I think, sees it as a really patriarchal and violent institution. But there's a moment, I believe in the second episode, where one of the characters says something to the Andrew Garfield character, a very upright and believing Mormon, something like, the men in our church, they do evil. you know. And he's essentially saying, look at yourself, look into your own proper upstanding law-abiding mm-hmm. Mormon yeah. life and see the patriarchy and the violence that's inscribed there.
2: You know, I like conceit of the show which is that there's actually an a really horrific continuity between the you know patriarchy and violence of the original mormon church This is the logic of the show i have no independent opinion on this and the fate of this young woman um potentially the best part of the show is simply the kind of drama of manners of a of a you know by i think Standards of the hosts of the show, like a modestly cosmopolitan young woman of ambition, right? She wants to get into TV and be a presenter. She's facing um, sexism there, which I think is interestingly depicted. I think the actress Daisy Edgar Jones is is a bright spot in this, along with Birmingham. She's she's really terrific. She just—it's it, important that she adds color and life to a family that's the endowing one another to death. Um, and um, and you know, of course, someone like that coming in from the outside is just implicitly a referendum on the hypocrisy and and invol you know sort of involuted logic of a of a of a clannish family in in modern America and the resentment they feel automatically also the kind of seduction you know. But there's just I'll give you a scene that was just like it was such a profound turnoff for me. I could hear the director saying to one of the actors playing the brother who's the closest thing to a worldly or other in some sense. And it, you just hear the director saying to the actor, okay, crowd her a little bit the first time he meets her. Like, crowd her at the picnic a little bit. Like, be be kind of ambiguously over-sexual with her or whatever. And he just, it's just so over, it's so freaking overplayed. This could have been such an interesting moment. And I'm like, I I hear the script notes. I hear the script meeting on this. I don't see, I'm not watching something real. I felt that way over and over and over again. It could have been good. I just didn't, it was, it was the horse's butt attached to the the horse's butt attached to the horse's butt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went back to it being terrible. Sorry.
1: <laughs> you talked yourself out of coming around. Yeah. But it all there's just like too much going It's only seven episodes. We're supposed to do all of Mormon history, the tableau vivant, you know, frenetic crosscut, Mormon Kennedy, dissolution, anti-tax. It's just all too much except for, except for Gil Birmingham and, and Detective Taba. And the, you know, the show does an interesting thing where he's like the outsider entree character for you know audiences that don't know a ton about mormonism so you've got sort of like the the white other culture and then you've got the kind of native american sardonic man about town is the is the entry point character and that that's like an interesting flip on what we typically see on tv in a way that's refreshing
2: yeah and important to the story because it puts the lie to the mormon claim as presented in the show which is you know the anti tax ideology is based on the sense that we were here before the government was we were the original settlers and to have a native character who basically without saying it is like uh, i call bullshit right um anyway under the banner of heaven you can watch it streaming on hulu um (laughs) more courage to you if after our segment you do that but if you disagree i would love to hear it and if you're offended by the portrayal of the lds church um we'd also love to hear that so shoot us an email okay let's move on All right. Now is the moment in our podcast. We discuss business. Dana, what do you got?
0: Stephen, our only item of business today is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment, which this week comes from a listener question, a really good one from a listener named Daniel, who writes, Dear Gabfesters, I was wondering if you could talk about your own experiences with editing, either editing others or being edited. Are there notable instances in which you found that editing saved you or your writer from indulging your worst tendencies as a writer? Are there instances where you feel an editor sent you off course and damaged a piece that could have been much better? So this is an excellent question. I'm sure we all have lots to say about it, not least because Julia worked as an editor for many years, whereas Steve and I have been working for them for many years. So we will answer Daniel's question and ramble about our editing experiences, positive and negative, after the show. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that bonus segment automatically at the end of this program. If you are not, you can sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus content like the segment I just described, which occur on lots of other Slate shows as well. And, of course, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. And, of course, you will also be supporting our work as a member and the work of all of our colleagues at Slate. These memberships matter a lot to us, so please, if you enjoyed this show, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next?
2: Marion and Nellie are two eight-year-old girls. They're out exploring in the woods near each of their respective houses, and they meet each other for the first time and become fast Friends. There is a huge twist here. I'm going to take a little time to explain it. Let me say if you want to see this movie unspoiled, you may want to fast forward through this segment. I will say that every review of this film says what I'm about to say right up front, as does the Wikipedia entry, as does, in a way, the title of the film, Petite Mama. And the twist comes very near the beginning of the film. Nonetheless, I did see it not knowing. I liked that. So up to you. But here we go. These two girls look almost like twins no accident they're actually played by actresses young actresses who are twins but in the conceit of the film they're actually mother and daughter they've come together through some unexplained fracture in time in the woods to meet as peers as girls of the same age and sensibility who grow to love one another and the girl who is the daughter understands what is happening and is mystified by it as we are um We'll get into it, but I should say, up front, it has less in common with a Star Trek episode or the movie Arrival. It's more, to me, like The Little Prince or the Grand Moulinée, uh if I'm saying that right. Uh, it's kind of a French mini-genre of the child who finds an enchanted non-place stuck in non-time. Um, and it's neither temporal nor eternal in essence, but somehow both. The beauty of this movie is in its effinescence, as proven by the fact that our crack producer Cameron cannot extract a clip from it. It is all in French, and it has, with the exception of one song near the end of the film, it has no soundtrack. Uh, there's no way to convey it's. It's beautiful in hush. Aura. We didn't Are want the, a
1: clip of just the trees like sighing and rustling. I, I there's love a lot that. of like <laughs> potent rustling.
2: I love it. Well, you've made the last line of my intro come true with your uh, rude interruption. Um, As I wrote here, it says it means we get to start talking about it right away. Off we go. Dana Stevens, let me start with you. I haven't in my introduction said who's responsible for this remarkable little gem. Talk a little bit about who that is.
0: Céline Sciamma, who's the writer-director of this movie, uh, also made Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That was sort of her breakthrough film outside of France, although not at all her, her first film or her first great film. And uh, and so it's an interesting next step to take. I mean, if you saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire or read about it, you know that it's in its way sort of grand scale. I mean, it has a, a modesty and a restraint to it that this film shares, but it is a sweeping period romance, a lesbian love story. It you know It takes on, I would say, a bigger... Kind of metaphysical burden to chew on than this movie. Although in its way, this little seventy-two minute long movie—I don't know if you mentioned that, Steve—but this movie is so short as to barely constitute a feature-length film. Uh, it's it's going into a completely different territory, uh, and yet not. We can talk about that too. But anyway, that you would not have expected after essentially getting um, the right to make any sort of movie she wanted. That Celine Siyama would go so small uh, to me, and we can we can get into why. I think that this. Maybe a weaker film than Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I want to hear what you guys think of it before I share my few reservations about it. But in general, I would enthusiastically send people to this very unusual, very spare, beautifully constructed and structured and written uh, little fairy tale.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about on this show, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which we discussed for this podcast, was the last film I saw in theaters before the pandemic. And I, I've said several times, I think, like, if that were the end of my movie-going experience, I would have been happy. Like, yeah, it was, that movie
0: is, is perfect. So, I, I mean, to compare whatever she does next to it is, in a way, unfair. Yeah,
1: like, to me, it's sort of like, okay, after some great composer wrote, like, a landmark symphony, they, like, you know, did a little etude and and it, and it was good and also of the same caliber of work, but, like, not as grand an undertaking. Um, you know, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire seemed like it was about, like, the being of women, like Womenhood, capital W, and Art, capital A, and like whether the twain can meet.
0: Yet without being as stodgy as that could easily be. Yes. And this film is like a,
1: it's like a novella from a grand novelist, or, or it it has the quality of a sketch to it. But, so it's only my second Céline Shama film, and I'm like going straight to the archives. Like, I cannot get enough of this woman and her eye and her work. And you know, she's not the first female filmmaker in history, right? Like she's, she's not, um, you know, alone in her effort to study how girls become women and what it means to be a woman. And again, I'm making these things sound so ponderous, but like there's something about the freshness of her eye and the clarity with which she sees female selfhood that feels like it's the first time you've seen it on screen, or something. Like I, I, I'm struggling to put it into words, but you just—I didn't feel like I could remember seeing girlhood studied so attentively in a movie. And you just kind of are watching this girl go through life, and all of her basic movements seem sort of marvelous and interesting, and and re- throw you back into like how strange the world seemed when you were a kid. And then this—you see this girl meet this other. girl Girl, who looks uncannily like her, but you, you the, the way that the camera sets up the tension and suspense of like, are they the same girl? Does the girl look exactly like her? Like you kind of can't tell for like a couple scenes exactly how similar they look or what the hell is going on. Um But meanwhile, they're they're building suspense out of like pouring hot, you know, being an eight year old pouring hot milk into a bowl. Like just the the attention to the mundane. Into the feminine feels so radical to me, and I, I'm probably just a poor student of film history, but I just love it, and I really enjoyed this. Although I, I don't, I wouldn't like put it on the same pedestal as I put the previous film.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I would, but I'm, I'm, I maybe wasn't exactly the target audience for the first one, or maybe I was, but my own missed it or something. But I mean, I, I admired that movie but didn't love it. I loved this movie. Hmm. Um, I regarded it as an almost perfect film in its way i love the courage of the small the quiet and the and the short i think that that's not a small thing dana you're absolutely right to make something that's 70 or minutes or so long and just exquisitely perfect it didn't require padding um it doesn't have a ton of dialogue on the page no music with one small exception takes an enormous enormous amount of confidence and um i admired that about it um this is a deep movie about matrilineal inheritance, right? I mean, it's about motherhood in a way that it's it you, you haven't ever seen it before. This is the first time you've ever seen it told exactly this way. I also think, to the extent I sense how this movie was made, effectively, she made a tiny, and you could argue maybe beautiful, but somewhat not inconsequential. I wouldn't want to go that far, but a slice-of-life movie about two girls becoming fast friends, right? Kind of randomly in the middle of the woods becoming fast friends. And um, and it was filmed in a... a verite is not right at, a way at all. You don't feel as though the camera is a fly on the wall. Um, it's, it's more that it was very um, uh, consciously matter-of-fact in its style. So just as you say, uh, Julia, these little gestures are pregnant with the meanings of childhood, where your perspective as a child is ratcheted down often to tiny little objects. And because you aren't integrated fully into the world, you create imaginative worlds that you can fully immerse yourself in as the world watching the girls do that as a father of a daughter who wasn't that long ago, eight years old and having seen her do it, this was so uh, powerfully evocative for me. And then around that is this sci-fi like premise that, just doesn't get explored at all. It's like it it reminded me a teeny tiny bit of la jete that the great very short movie I mean, it's maybe twenty minutes or a half an hour long about kind of the looping cycles of time it doesn't it just doesn't dwell on that it's not it's getting at something else, which is that and I had never thought this thought before and um, but it's getting at the difference between patrimony and matrimony, right? I mean, just this insane. Discrepancy built into the language whereby patrimony means the legal inheritance of property from father to son, and matrimony means women marrying men, right? Like legally recognizing their status through marriage. And this is like, no, 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 no. This is matrimony as a corollary to patrimony. This is this inheritance that we can only be partially conscious of because it doesn't have the same formal recognition exactly in the law, but it's not purely biological, right? It's like this. Deep connection between generations of women and it's as much about the grandmother as it is about the mother and where and how that might get broken and repaired i mean that is so powerfully moving i don't want to spoil the ending i won't in the least little bit spoil the ending but gosh i mean talk about the balance of the said and the unsaid um and the reparative work that's happened quietly under the surface of this film i just thought it was this just uh, that rare species of 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 small, but perfect. I, I, I adored it. Tell us your quibbles, Dana.
0: Okay. My quibble probably makes me look worse than it makes the movie look. And in fact, before we taped, I was mocked by Dan Coyce, who knows what my reservation about Petite Maman is. And he was saying, "Haha, ha, you have to say it on mic and you're going to look mean. So my main quibble, which I have to say my viewing partner shared, and I say it as lovingly as I can, because I'm talking about child actors is that one of the two twin sisters who plays the, mom-kid pair as children is a good actor and the other is not very good. (laughs) And one of them is capable of handling this very spare, restrained, difficult-to-deliver kind of dialogue that Celine writes. Because actually, Steve, when you say slice of life, I somewhat disagree. I don't think these kids Mm. talk and behave exactly like Kids that I know—they no, don't bit fairy like adults tale. either. But it's a yeah, little
1: fable-ish.
0: Right? They right, have a kind of—they have a, a sobriety of demeanor that no kid would always have. Even rough. the most somber kid would have more gabbling, goofy moments. But that is, as Julia says, that's part of the whole fairy tale logic. I have no objection to the dialogue sounding like that. I'm just saying that it requires a very special eight-year-old, or they're supposed to be eight, maybe they're a tiny bit older in real life, but not much. It requires a special eight-year-old to be able to deliver that kind of dialogue. And I think that the girl, well, I will make you guys guess, because you probably Whoa, wait, disagree okay. and you probably think I'm just, I'm being a really haggy, no, mean so, critic who hates children. so interested. <laughs> and God no, it's, bless it's just... both these girls for taking on this incredible project. I mean, they're well, they're on, both yeah, awesome. Yeah, okay. And they have some very sweet moments together, kind of improvising as sisters. But when it comes to saying the words that Celine Siyama put on the page, <sighs> one of them can do it better than the the other, I mean, one? I know
2: which my guess is. I mean, I can I just say one thing first of all, how deliciously off brand it is for Dana to be cruel to children <laughs> on mic. I, I applaud her for the courage
0: off mic, um, though I'm infamous for it, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But let me also say that I'm I'm like I suffer from clothes blindness, so I continually couldn't remember which one was Marion and which one was Nellie anyway. I didn't see a huge difference in the in the acting, I didn't note one at all, but. I don't know, Julia, it sounds like maybe you did.
1: Uh, I mean, it did not occur to me in the watching to make a distinction. But now that you say this, I feel like Nellie certainly can silently hold, maybe she can't speaking, but Nellie seems to hold the camera, the character we meet first. And Mm -hmm. Marion, her kid mom, Petit Maman, is... I guess I would guess be the one that you think is the worst actress?
0: Yep. you nailed it. it, it well, and would it, it make sense that Celine Siyama would give the the harder part, the girl who's yeah, on yeah. screen every single moment, to you know the the twin who's, I think, more capable of handling the dialogue. I,
1: you know, it's interesting. I think the way I experience what you're describing in the film is that the mom kid character felt less real to me. And maybe that was a failure of acting, but to me, it contributed to this feeling of like, is this even real? Is this all in her head? Like, there's a moment where Marion meets the dad character, and and she's sort of standing on the edge of the room. Oh, like, yes. u- like yep. usually Nellie is going into the past, but then there's one scene where Marion comes into the present, and you kind of think maybe the dad character is going to be like, what? Yep. You know, but then he's like, or, or oh, hello, Mary. can't see her, right? Yeah, that there's going to be, some, you know, somehow he gets folded into the magic world where they can time hop in this fashion. Um, and, Yeah. So I I do not think you're cruel. I think you are doing your job as a critic, assessing what you have seen on screen. And look, projects with child actors are really hard to do because it's hard to find children who can pull it off. I felt like the actress who played Nellie is so good and so charismatic that it all kind of worked for me.
2: Right. I would also say, and I totally agree with that, I would say it is a slice of life film, at least along the fringes, where you see her interacting with her actual older parents, right? The father especially like cutting his beard with him, whatever. That's classic sl- class- slice of life cinema. The other thing I'd say is, you know, to get into this film at all, you're taking this enormous leap, right? You are your disbelief is suspended quite high. I think that's the film makes it very easy for you to do that. Once you've done that, I went with it. I just never once considered either one of them a deficient um, actress in any way, shape, or form. And I found their play so believable. Clearly some of those scenes were like, set the camera, okay guys, make pancakes, right? Oh, and I you agree. Just have two... I agree. When yeah. she lets them oh, no. just interact yeah. as sisters, yes. and, and you
0: see that in intervie- interviews with Siyama too, that she loves working with children. She's made many coming-of-age yeah. movies before about about kids, usually a little bit older, like tweens, but children are a, a big theme in her filmmaking, little girls specifically. And, no. and you can tell that she... Is is essentially engaging them in play before the camera when they're building a little fort and things like that. And those things are all, all wonderful. I mean, I'm really specifically talking about line delivery. I
2: I understand. No, I understand. Okay. It's Petite Mama. Um, It's currently only in theaters, I would say. This is really worth seeking out. I think we all, whatever quibbles aside, it's it's, it's worth seeking out. Uh, Highly, highly recommended. Okay. Moving on. I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Well, um, the next segment is um, about public parks, but we're going to start with the peg, our peg for it, uh, an admirable um, piece in the New Yorker by Alexandra Lang about the legacy of Frederick Law Olmsted, um, and I think it asks, uh, Julia, maybe I'll start with you. It, it asks a very, um, in its way, poignant and relevant question, which is, in a, a I would say, blessedly more woke world, whether Olmsted's legacy is and can be a living one, and she quotes a say A professor, professor who teaches urban planning and urban about urban green spaces. And she says what she finds has most purchase among her students, quote, is the idea that the green space has a history of exclusion, even though the original ideals might have been different. Um, And I I think that that's an interesting place to start. We'll we'll expand off of that. But the idea that, you know, the pretense to utopian slash Arcadian inclusion in cities, which tend to be otherwise very congested, polluted, and class stratified um, hasn't always been really a true one historically. That Surely that resonates. I mean, do, do, what did you make of that?
1: I thought this was a really interesting piece. I mean, I grew up in Boston, which is a city that that is studded with Frederick Law Umstead Parks. And then I lived for 20 years in New York, which obviously has, in both Central Park and Prospect Park, uh, you know, halcyon examples of the work of him and his firm. Uh, and now I live in Los Angeles, where there are a wealth of state and national parks that are accessible to me. Uh, and the you know, kind of culture of California and the West Coast is that as that public access to the coast is a right that is much more robustly held and defended than it is on the East Coast in a way that's really interesting when you think about public natural space. But where largely instead of urban parks, we just have private golf courses, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. yeah. um, I I just am now in a in a city with a very very different relationship to to park space. And um, the thing that I found most interesting in this piece was actually the observation about the role that Olmsted played in the evolution of mm. thinking about landscape mm. and urban planning in America. Um, and, you know described him as as a son of Connecticut. And then says, popularizing the term landscape architecture, which Olmsted did, and transforming the discipline into a licensed Ivy League pursuit, as his son did, cut off its history and its practitioners from the millennia of expertise acquired by humans working on the land. Fleming prefers to teach a longer history of landscape architecture that includes indigenous communities and the ways in which they continue to design the land as well as radical groups like Britain's diggers who used gardening as a way of taking back public space and building political power. So, you know, the the, the notion of coming from Boston and New York, both stuffy East Coast cities with their own relationships to nature, um, it was interesting to think about Olmstead in a different light as someone who, who both designed these beautiful public spaces I've enjoyed, but public spaces that maybe... Displaced communities, or also um, do a do a better job of making some people feel welcome than others. I mean, I actually went birdwatching this morning in Central Park with a friend, and walked through the Ramble, and a dog scampered past us off leash, and we were both remembering, you know, the confrontation that took place between the black watcher and the white woman walking her dog. Uh, you know that that was an electrifying source of debate a couple of years ago. Um, you know, so the question of how these parks make you feel like you belong in them, and in general, how public space opens itself up to, to people of all walks of life, um, is it's fascinating how you do that through the plan of the park itself, through the, you know, transit infrastructure you build around it, through uh, all, all kinds of design choices that help create a sense of community in place.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciated that this this article we're talking about de-romanticized or de-idealized Olmsted, who certainly in, in New York urban design, you know, sort of normal conversations or histories is thought of as somebody who brought green space to the city as opposed to deprived people of their homes in order to build a classist landscape, right? I mean, the idea that those two stories are braided together and coexist is fascinating. I wish this particular article had gone a bit deeper into specifically, um, you know, outside of that critique— what new designers of parks are doing. Um, It would have been great, for example, even to have some interactive elements of getting to go and explore. I sort of wanted to see somebody walk me through a design of a non olmstead public space and why it's more successful. And uh, yeah. and I'm not sure. I, and I also just kept waiting for the anti-car, the part that was going to be about sort of anti-car activism and how highways have transformed the landscape since Olmstead's time. And I think I, I, I was waiting for a little bit uh, more meat on the bones of this particular piece. But it did spark ideas that I want to ask you guys about, including, Julia, even though you just spoke, I still want to ask you at some point to talk about the Emerald necklace, which was this this phrase I'd never heard for the way that the the Olmstead parks in Boston are designed to kind of connect to each other and create this green path throughout the city. That seemed really fascinating and it's just also a lovely name. I just wondered if you had an experience. It's a beautiful name.
1: And it actually requires me to make a disclosure because my mom for a long time was on the board of the Emerald Park Conservancy. And I, you know, as a journal working journalist, like don't really donate to Nonprofits or foundations very much, lest there be some conflict of interest. But I have donated. I need to stipulate to our listeners: I have donated to both the Central Park Conservancy and the Emerald Necklace Conservancy. So uh, take my she's in the park, pocket of big park park shilling uh, with the appropriate <laughs> grains <laughs> of salt. Um, yeah, I mean I think the notion there, you know, mounted in the piece is the idea that perhaps the Emerald Necklace is a better model for future parks than something like Central Park where, you know, big swaths of terrain are all bundled together uh, and made into one grand space that, you know, makes all the land immediately adjacent to it much more valuable and then creates a hierarchy of of place uh, in 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 a way that has has class and economic implications. Um, and racial ones, too, no doubt. I think the idea being advanced is that smaller parks that are more distributed in more types of neighborhoods is perhaps a more democratic and useful way to structure landscapes. And, you know, that's obviously one of the big public critiques of both the High Line and then more recently Little Island, which I haven't been to yet, which is that if all of the money that had been raised by private sources to make those like luxury parks in the sky or that you have to get to by boat or whatever bridge, I been, again, I haven't been to Little Island, you um, had just been, like, equally doled out to, like, every public park in New York to make it, like, that much nicer for the people who lived near it. You know, how much better would that have been for the city than kind of creating a pocket of West Chelsea and the Meatpacking District that, you know, suddenly could spring up, like, luxury apartment towers around it? Um, You know, and I think you can probably argue it both ways. Like, a bunch of distributed parks all over the place getting modestly better might... You know, have been less effective in some fashion of like raising consciousness of the idea of the value of public space or might have had less like economic value for New York and its labor force or something. I'm sure you I'm sure you can study it and argue it many ways and that people have. Yeah.
2: So let me give you an example of my relationship to Olmsted. In addition to, of course, you know, adoring Prospect Park in Brooklyn, some people say the the better version of of Central Park, and and what Central Park has been to Manhattan that I grew up in. Um, you know, I was driving in Troy, New York, a city of about 50,000, in many ways, a troubled city of about 50,000 north of me by about 40 minutes. It's a city, for various reasons, I have occasion to return to frequently. And I passed its, I believe it's called Prospect Park. And I said, that had to have been designed by Olmsted. I mean, just even along the periphery, it gives off so precisely the same vibe as the major parks in New York City. Well, it turns out it wasn't, but it was designed Uh, In direct, very direct homage to Prospect Park in Brooklyn by another designer influenced by Olmsted. And it exerts the same kind of wonderful presence in in the city of Troy. I mean, the ideals can be kept, they just have to be radically modified for vastly changed times but especially because the times are changed. I mean, what is the essence of neoliberal America, right? It's the privatization of absolutely everything, the systematic and slow erosion slash destruction of public goods, publicly available goods. So the ones that we do have, public schools, public libraries, public parks, have to be cherished and defended. They can't be undermined from within, as it were. They... they, they absolutely have to be redesigned for uh, a post-me too and a post Floyd world they have to be inclusive like genuinely inclusive but as with the united states itself as a collective project it needs to be held up to its own utopian ideals right of you know all men being created equal has to be radically radically rewritten to include um, something more than men and something more than propertied white men and yet it has to be grafted, I think, upon that foundation, and and similarly, I just think Olmsted is the basis, and the article ends up acknowledging that. Um, Dana, I take your point absolutely. Uh, to be absolutely right, I mean, it's kind of Olmsted versus Robert Moses is one way of looking at the um, battle of the twentieth century. Moses, the evangel of the automobile suburbanization, and kind of a, in his own way, a kind of hater of the non automotive urban space and neighborhood. Um, Perfectly happy to bulldoze Washington Square Park in favor of a freeway. Thank God the efforts against that were successful. So um, we'll talk a little bit about Dana. You live very near Prospect Park. It must be totally central to your and your family's existence.
0: Yeah, Prospect Park is a huge part of my life, especially since we have a dog. So that's, you know, the, the place that when she was little and had so much energy, she had to have long walks every day. We went there more often. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I feel like living near a park or near the water in New York City is the equivalent of, of living near the coast. You know, it's like, it's almost like there has to be some geographical feature within walking distance of your house, or you feel like, you know, you just feel like you live in, a, in an urban hellscape, especially on hot, disgusting summer days. So our, our scape, you know, our sort of, um, place that there's some sort of break from the gray asphalt of the city is Prospect Park and I couldn't love it more and how is it different from Central Park I guess essentially it's just scruffier and that's what I like about it it's a place you know where there's a little bit less upkeep and manicuredness, and you don't as much have the feeling that you're picturesquely strolling in a Nora Ephron movie at every moment. (laughs) You know, you can actually sort of get lost in the woods and and feel a little bit more scruffy and barren if you want to. And, you know, and it's just got so many great fun features that Central Park also has, what with, you know, carousels and playgrounds and all that stuff. I couldn't love it more. And
2: Dana, in the woods, there are ruptures in space-time by which you get to meet your own Ancestors and parents.
0: <laughs> and you just wish that your mom, as a child, was as good an actor as you are. <laughs> 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 but my last thing to say about the urban space actually has to do again with anti-car activism. It just seems like that is such an important, important piece of this, not just in relationship to this one article, but just to any time we have a conversation about what public urban space should be. I mean, if we want to have the cheap version of making a shareable public space, like we don't have to design fancy, expensive parks with wonderful green swards or something. We can just have fewer cars. I'm just thinking about when yeah,
2: Times Square God became yeah. a
0: plaza like it is now. There's that chunk of Times Square that's near the, you know, ticket booth and all that. It's a sort of Broadway show area, uh, where at a certain point a few years ago, they just walled it off with barricades and put these rickety metal chairs in the middle of, uh, I just remember thinking, this is never going to last. This is a crazy idea. How is traffic traffic possibly going to get around this? And this isn't unique to Times Square. I think this has happened all over Paris. I haven't been there in years, but apparently they're shutting down tons and tons of boulevards and just making them into bike lanes. And as soon as you put out some chairs and block the cars and make it possible for people to walk and ride bikes, the place is just better. You know, that part of Times Square is still Mm -hmm. just as ugly. It's still approximately just as smoggy because there's still cars swarming all around it. It's just as noisy. And yet it is it feels like a park just because it's a place where you can walk and sit and be so anyway oh, i mean maybe this is cuz i just finished reading jody's book about no. about bikes but i just feel so activist about why yeah. do we have so many cars like let's stop just complaining about it and get I, rid of them
2: no no doubt and let me i know we've gone long but let me just quickly say like that should be the last word that that the whole Call me a snob, I do not care. The hole in every American's heart is the absence of the European-style plaza, the piazza, where an urban space. It's not really a park; it's part of the streetscape. People stroll before and after dinner. Often, tiny children strolling at midnight in Spain in the in the plaza. It's just we don't we don't have we just don't have that. And if you say, "Oh, we have malls," I mean, exactly. I mean, that's that's the. I just don't even get me started. So, anyway. Let me just say we did this segment in part because, in no small part, because we're all, the panel is just fans of Alexandra Lang. Um, her piece in The New Yorker is called The Future of Public Parks. Check it out and shoot us emails. I know you all have a relationship to public spaces, vis-a-vis private ones, and we'll have interesting things to say. All right, moving on. <laughs> Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you got?
0: All right. My endorsement this week is an entire book. I don't like doing these too often because it makes me feel like I'm giving people homework and we all have plenty to do. And I also did recently recommend another full novel. But I can't help it. I just read for the first time without realizing it was the first time. I thought I had read this book because I saw the movie and I read another book by the same author and I somehow collapsed it. But are both of you familiar with Howard's End by E.M. Forster? Have mm-hmm. you read the book? Oh, my God. Only one connect.
2: of my favorite <laughs> novels so of all time. It's incredible. Familiar I mean, with.
0: I honestly seriously thought I had read this book until... The week of my vacation just now when I was in, in the Bay Area doing some things I wanted an audiobook to listen to while traveling and walking around. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll reread Howard's End as a, as an audiobook listen, put it on, and then realized I never read Howard's End. I just saw the movie, <laughs> read oh, A Passage wow. to India around that same time. I love the movie. I think it's one of the best of those Merchant Ivory movies, and the casting is perfect and it's, for what it is, great. But, I mean, like any movie adapted from a novel, it can't capture all of the, you know, omniscient narrative and the switching, you know, voices. And the novel is just perfect. That is just such an incredible novel. Mm, from the point of view book. of yep. characterization, you know, the, the the sort of themes of of capitalism and, you know, the industrial era that it's developing and, you know, thoughts about London versus the country and all of that stuff is, like, perfectly integrated. But it also is hilariously funny Right. It's there's this really, really nimble narrator who is sort of semi-omniscient and you never quite know which character is going to become the protagonist for some chunk of chapters. And there's epistolary parts and it just all is so smoothly integrated. And I couldn't stop listening to it. I was obsessed on my whole trip with with Howard's End and was just trying to get over with every encounter so I could clap back in in my earbuds and listen to some more Howard's End. Oh, my God. This is this was a good reader. I don't remember the reader specifically, but read it in any form. I so howerdon is my
1: mother's favorite book and I was a precocious girl and I read it at summer camp the summer after 5th grade and I remember still <laughs> this, this horrible girl at camp like you know I was like taking refuge in a book at on the dock at nap time and uh she like accused me of pretending to read fast to impress her and I was like oh my god reading is like the one thing (laughs) where I like don't have to deal with you and your bitchiness (laughs) anyway so that's like my one memory of Howard's End but also Whatever they're like various like adult books that I just read as like a precocious little idiot and I haven't read it since so I have quote unquote read Howard's End but like not
0: well then maybe yeah <laughs> so I think my, I it need to go fall back to, on to deaf it ears. yeah <laughs> oh, no I God. think I could have because I could have told you the basic story of Howard's End and the names of the main characters or something I sort of felt like yeah I get that book but no the book get got me <laughs> it completely pulled out the rug and made me realize just how wonderful the novel is like just a perfectly structured novel what a great human and you know and that that's one of them
2: so absolutely table pounded all right uh julio all
1: right so I, I i sent out my rfp i asked you guys to explain the relationship between birding and snorkeling we got a number of wonderful responses but uh finally a couple of weeks ago we got i think the the um the one the the response that explains it best with the best bona fides and i'm going to share it with listeners today Hello, this message is in response to Julia's query about the culture of fish watching and snorkeling. I am the daughter of two professors of marine aquatic ecology. My father is a doctor of ichthyology, fish biologist, and my mother is a doctor of limnology, freshwater ecosystem biologist. Both of them are now retired and have taken up birding. As you can imagine, your question was the perfect fodder for our conversation at our Mother's Day dinner. They both confirmed that there is not an equivalent life list in the fish-watching realm due primarily to the fact that there are about seven times as many fish species as bird species on the planet. Also, the fact that one must get in the water to see fish makes them less accessible than birding, especially in places where the water is not tropical like a lot of the planet. They also mentioned That many of the world's fish are not easy to see when snorkeling since it's mostly a shallow water activity. Open ocean snorkeling is extremely creepy if you've ever tried it. I haven't, but now I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) I'm intrigued. That's an incredibly intriguing parenthetical. And not all fish go to the shallows. However, people who are really into fish do create their own bucket lists, my dad's includes a whale shark and a manta ray, and travel accordingly with masks, snorkel, and fins packed. And there are definitely certain circles of fish nerds who swap stories of the species they've seen, but it's primarily in academia rather than the robust population of citizen birders out there. It sounded like you were also curious about the culture of snorkeling, which goes beyond fish finding, I think. One can be a snorkeling enthusiast without being motivated by fish, since the underwater worlds, fresh and salty, are so rich with all kinds of life. I know people who just always bring their snorkel gear when traveling. However, this might not satisfy your urge to check species off a list.
0: So satisfying! Oh, my God. Beautifully written. Totally authoritative. That's the ideal listener response. Yes.
1: Thank you all. Thanks to everyone who sent in other ones. They were all illuminating, but that one was uh, economical in its conveyance of information. Too many fish. They don't go where you can go. they are different all over the place. And apparently open ocean (laughs) snorkeling is weirdly creepy, which is an enticing detail. So thank you very much, listener. Thank you all for indulging my call and response project.
2: Oh, so cool. All right. Well, my uh, endorsement this week is of a book review that made me want to read the book with just like a keening, keening poignancy. The book under consideration is called The Book of Unconformities, Speculations on Lost Time by someone named Hugh Raffles. And the review is by uh, Kathleen Jamie, who it turns out is Scotland's national poet. Um, And no wonder, it's just so beautifully written. And let me just say that in like, The European piazza that fills the hole in my American heart, everyone wandering around for their evening constitutional, um, all all of them are either poets or scientists, but each of the poets has a scientist within them, and each of the scientists has a poet within them, and apparently that's true both of Hugh Raffles, the scientist who wrote the book. And it's also true of Kathleen Jamie, um, the the poet who wrote the review. It's in the New Statesman. It's online. We'll link to it. But let me just read a little bit from it. And unconformity is a geologist's term. It denotes a discontinuity in the deposition of sediment, a material sign of a break in time. But how can time break? Surely time goes on like an arrow through one damn thing after the next. And so the review goes on. It's kind of a, a book about, as I understand it, the intermingling of geologic evidence um, for, you know, it, it, as it as it narrates in a way the history of the Earth with human history as it's intersected with the history of the Earth, and um, and how our own history and that of every other living creature becomes embedded in stone over time. It's just so beautifully written. And let me just read one more bit of it. So we begin to understand what an unconformity might mean. Something closer to a catastrophe. Time breaks. Futures are lost or stolen. There are fissures in understanding and knowledge. Lifeways that have developed over millennia for peoples or animals can be snapped. It just, it, 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 it's just it's just such a beautifully written review and the quotes from the book make it sound less like something dry than you know and scientific than something by Sebald or bolano i mean it's clearly a, a minor masterpiece um, and i trust the reviewer completely so i've ordered it so just to, just to review, because I know there's a lot packed in there, but the book under review is called The Book of Unconformities by Hugh Raffles. The reviewer is Kathleen Jamie, the um, national poet of Scotland, and the review appeared in The New Statesman, and we will link to it. I really think it's worth checking out all three of those. Guys, the FOMO, you know, really, really keen, really I keep saying keen and poignant over and over again. And that's how bad the FOMO was. It's disoriented me. And I got a snort out <laughs> of Julia. The prized snort. But it was really fun. The reunion compromised as it was was great. Good show. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana.
0: Thanks, Steve. Feel better
2: yeah thanks you'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page that's slate.com slash culture and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com our intro music is by the wonderful composer nick bretel our producer is cameron drews our production assistant is nadira goff for dana stevens and julia turner i'm Stephen mecca thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll see you soon